Hey, what's going on, everyone? Welcome to the Hue Capital Podcast, hosted by yours truly, Jaleesa Juju Fontaine. I just want to thank you all once again for tuning into my baby, Hue Capital. The purpose of this podcast is to introduce you all to influential black and brown leaders, innovators, and founders as we dissect the intersection of business, tech, and culture across numerous industries. Through this podcast, not only will you be introduced to insights surrounding building the relationships, skill, and industry knowledge necessary to develop a career that suits your passion, but you will also gain a sense of what it means to build and or create a business that makes social impact and generates revenue. To my amazing community of career transitioners, job seekers, and founders, I got you. After becoming the first black woman to serve as student government president at SUNY Albany and also experiencing my own career transition in 2019 from pursuing medicine into digital health and corporate wellness, I have witnessed the career struggles of young professionals firsthand. With that, I am prepared to leverage my platforms to set you up for success. So let's get into it. Hi, everyone. Thank you all so much for tuning in to another episode of the Hugh Capital Podcast. Of course, with yours truly, Jaleesa Juju Fontaine. Uh, of course, as you all know, throughout this series, I'm really big on representation, right? I really want to show you all a great spread of multicultural people who are just really killing it in their industries. Uh, like I always tell you guys, I wanted to be a physician. I thought the only way to change healthcare was by being a doctor. But I realize there's other ways that I can do that. So for you, if you are someone in tech, if you are someone in business, and you kind of feel like you want to know the endless opportunities out there, I think that our guest today is the epitome of the different routes that you can go into to kind of really reach the career that you want. All right, y'all? So today I have our amazing guest. Her name is Natalie Molina Nino. And before I even give her the chance to talk to you all, like I always tell you guys, I need to brag about my guests. All right, y'all, so bear with me. So Natalie Molina Nino is an entrepreneur, builder capitalist, and tech globalization veteran focused on high growth businesses that benefit women and of course the planet. She is the author of Leapfrog, the new revolution for women entrepreneurs and serves as a venture partner at Connectivity Capital Partners. And before we even get into the interview, I have to testify and say that book was amazing. I can prove to you all that I have notes in that book. She killed it. <laughs> um, Molina Nino launched her first tech startup at the age of 20 years old and is also the co-founder of Entrepreneurs at Athena at the Athena Center for Leadership Studies of Barnard College at Columbia University. All right, y'all? Molina Nino has also spent 15 years advising organizations such as Disney, Afabe, Microsoft, MTV, Mattel, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, in which she also co-led the launch and growth of a multinational technology globalization business with Lionbridge into an $100 million operation in 30 countries, 30 plus countries during this time. So to be honest with you all, her bio goes way beyond what I just said. I wish I could tell you all all of this in 40 minutes, but I can't. So what I will do is I will allow our lovely guest to introduce herself. Oh, thank you. I'm glad I'm glad you used the shorter one because with that amount of bragging, I don't know if my head would fit here. 
<laughs> honestly, you deserve all bragging rights, honestly. Thank you, thank you. So go ahead and tell us a little bit more about yourself and then we'll get right into some questions. Yeah, uh, it's funny when you have to kind of summarize uh, <laughs> because when you're in the middle of living your life, it doesn't always make sense. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you kind of look in hindsight and then you connect the dots. And I always worry that it all feels like it was perfectly planned and organized and it really wasn't. Um, mm -hmm. But I would say that the one connecting thread of maybe who I am and what I'm about is, you know, I'm a child of South American immigrants. Uh, I grew up in the sweatshops of L.A. and I knew exactly from day one what it was to work really hard um, and to fight every day, you know, mm -hmm. just to kind of get by and... I think that I learned my entrepreneurial spirit there, you know, in my house. Um, I know that a lot of um, certainly like my white friends and family, uh, sorry, friends in their families talk about how like at the din dinner room table, you know, you're not allowed to talk about politics and business. And it's like, that's all we talked about in yeah. my house. <laughs> it was always business. What's happening with our business? Who's paid? Who's not paid? Who's behind? You know, just like, how's the business going? Um, and as a little kid, you know, you end up kind of getting, in some ways, maybe your MBA at the dining room table. Um, so blessed uh, to have learned a lot about entrepreneurship and maybe because uh, my parents were figuring it out, also what to do and what not to do, right? Um, grew up, uh, ended up becoming an engineer because my family, like good immigrant families, made it very clear that even though I wanted to be an artist, mm -hmm. um, I could be a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer, but they did oh, not wait. bust their behinds to bring me to this country so I could be an artist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Talk about it. Talk so, about it. So I became an engineer, and because I was always passionate about the environment, I became an environmental engineer. And then while I was in grad school, I got distracted. I started a dot-com right in the middle of the dot-com boom. Uh, my partners and I got lucky. Uh, we ended up, um, you know, having an exit, and then ultimately, because I'm a masochist, starting four more companies in partnership and then working with other groups, including the last one, which was with Lionbridge Technologies, which was already a publicly traded organization when I joined. Um, and we did. We built a um, little business into a pretty big business that was a multinational. Um, ultimately, we had people in 42 countries at our largest. Um, and it was it was both amazing and that I learned. Uh, but I also didn't learn how to take care of myself. Mm -hmm. um, and that was the big lesson for me. And so where I am now is I retired from tech uh, almost, gosh, about almost nine years ago. Mm -hmm. um, I decided to take a few years off and to take, you know, a break. Uh, I decided that because I was always the rare breed of engineer who could sell and who mm -hmm. could kind of tell the story of sometimes really complex technology in ways that everyone could understand it. Um, that I would spend a couple years kind of polishing off my storytelling skills. And I couldn't think of a better place or a smarter or a better group of storytellers in the world mm -hmm. than New York theater people. So I went to New York and I studied theater at Columbia University. And while I was there, I ended up meeting the woman who became the co-founder with me of that uh, Center for Women Entrepreneurs. Um, who is a legend. She, her name is Catherine Colbert. She argued this landmark case that if anybody goes to law school or has been to law school since 1992, you have studied. It's called Planned Parenthood versus Casey. It's a landmark Supreme Court 
uh, uh, case, which is the case that in 1992 is credited with saving Roe v. Wade. Um, and so I was just honored to meet her. You can imagine how honored I was to even start something with her. Right. But, you know, it's funny to just remember that, like, when people are amazing, like she is, and she's a legend, and I read about her in books when I was growing up, uh, they're not experts in everything, right? right? And so even when you meet somebody like that who's like a living legend, if you have amassed expertise, if there's a thing that is sort of your, you know, your thing. Um, yeah, it's your thing. It's the thing you're passionate about. It's something that you've taken time to build knowledge around. You're still potentially a value, right? She felt like she wasn't an expert at entrepreneurship and she saw mm -hmm. that I was. And so suddenly there was a potential to join forces. And then in 2016, I realized after um, some years of teaching and of spending a lot of time with women entrepreneurs, mm -hmm. um, partly what informed the writing of my book, that what I learned is that women all over this country, and I would argue all over the world, um, of course they need education. We all need education. Education right. is a powerful tool. Absolutely. But women are not any less educated mm -hmm. than men mm -hmm. who are succeeding at business. Mm -hmm. And so even though I will always emphasize the importance of education, and I love teaching, and I hope to do more of it, in my life, the fact is, is it wasn't a lack of education that I saw that was holding women back in the sphere of business. It mm -hmm. was a lack of money. Yep. It was very simple. Mm -hmm. And so, so when I realized that in 2015, 16, I was like, okay, well, as nice as it is to be here in an Ivy League campus teaching brilliant students, and at the time I was also advising the White House, and uh, thanks to the Obama White House, I was able to travel all around the country teaching my curriculum, which was wonderful. But again, I kept learning the same thing. Right. We just aren't being given the money. That's right. And we have the ideas and we have the potential and we have the experience and the expertise. Mm -hmm. And so in 2016, I became an investor and that's what I do now. I'm an investor and I focus, as you said, on investing things that are right at that intersection of things that are both good for the planet and good for women. And it turns out when you look at everything from those two lenses, and when I say women, let's be really clear, I lead with women of color. Um, and the reason for that is honestly math. So yeah. anybody that focuses on gender in the United States when it comes to entrepreneurship and isn't leading and centering women of color in that conversation is just bad at math. Absolutely. Because it turns out women are starting businesses at twice the rate of, uh, rate of men, and a lot of people know that. But what a lot of people don't know is that 8.9, that number used to be eight. Now it's 8.9 out of every 10 of those women-owned businesses is started by a woman of color. So Absolutely. if you say gender and you don't actually mean mostly women of color, then you're doing gender wrong, right? So gender and climate are the two things that I care the most about. And so every investment that I make, I try to look at it through that lens. And when you do that, you actually end up finding that there's a ton of overlap, that it turns out women are probably the key to doing anything major to solve the climate crisis. Right. And we should be central to that because it turns out the climate crisis mostly impacts women of color as well. So if we're the ones most impacted and we're the ones that hold the majority of the solution, does that, it doesn't mean that it's on us to solve the problem alone, but it means that we better damn well have a, a seat at that table, right? Absolutely, and I'm so glad you kind of broke it down for us on so many different levels. And I do wanna take it back to say, as to why I was so impressed when I met you was obviously because as a young black woman, I was not really exposed to entrepreneurship, right? I didn't really know a lot of 
woman entrepreneurs. I didn't really knew, know what it meant to be an entrepreneur in tech. Mm -hmm. And you were able to thoroughly break down the discrepancies in the industry in terms of women who are starting companies versus mm -hmm. women of color, especially who are not getting funded to scale mm -hmm. their companies. And the mm -hmm. reality is anybody can start something, but if they're not given the resources to scale that business at large, you'll never right. truly understand the potential of the idea that they had. Because money Correct. allows you to make mistakes, take risks, and then you'll find the true result that makes you a successful company. But we need the resources to do that. And you're mm -hmm. the one who is solving those problems for us. Yeah, and I'm thankfully in really great company. Since I started my investment company in 2016, you've got a whole pack of us that have joined the fold. Mm -hmm. You mentioned in my bio connectivity capital that was started in part by a gentleman called uh, Denmark West, who was a really dear friend of mine, and I'm proud to work with him and his team. Mm -hmm. He is, you know, former BET, former MTV, former Microsoft exec. We actually worked together when uh, Microsoft was one of my biggest customers. Um, you have Monique Woodard, you have Arlen Hamilton, you have Gayla Jennings O'Byrne, you have Carmen Palafa. I could go on, Diane Henry, there are so many now new women of color that are in the investing space yep. that are basically realizing that we keep telling other people to mm -hmm. invest in our people. Right. Why don't we become the ones that write the checks? And that's ultimately how you solve a problem. You take matters into your own hands. We've been asking everybody to invest in us. They haven't been doing it. We're tired of waiting. Now we're going to be the ones that write the checks, right? I love it. And I do want to take it back a little bit, really briefly, mm -hmm. right? Uh, when you first started introducing yourself, right? You actually talked a little bit about your background, right? Like, you know, mm -hmm. being in LA, going to college in Colorado, you know, coming from this um, immigrant family. And I remember in your book, uh, you were very proud to talk about your love and your experience with your grandmother, right? Mm -hmm. So I yeah. do want you to kind of take it back a little bit and kind of re-explain to us, like, how has your grandmother influenced you to be so ambitious, to work so hard, and to really embody what the future of tech looks like yeah it's always a tough it's it's not a tough story it's just a wonderful story that always gets me choked up though because i think that what happens especially to those of us that are sort of bringing up a lot of people around us right and i just i want to emphasize that that like a lot of the times this happens when like people enter their career right and there are these sort of norms about like, well, if you're making this much money, you can afford to live in this kind of neighborhood and you can afford to have this kind of car and you can, you know, you, you should have this much saved. And what a lot of those, you know, dominant culture expectations don't account for is that some of us are bringing up our grandmas and our mm -hmm. aunties and our cousins and our brothers and sisters who were also putting through college and everything else. And so, no, it's not the right. same. Right. And I think that, you know, my grandmother, emphasized that point to me and it was you know you could see that as as a as a weight i saw it as a, as a responsibility and and as a promise that i was making to my grandmother right and i don't think that i understood it until um there is a story in my book that i talk about where i really learned this lesson and i was little i was like seven years old maybe uh -huh. and my grandmother used to bring work home and she had those industrial size you know sewing machines um, that they use in factories. She had some at home. And so on the weekends, because she was an entrepreneur as well. And so on the weekends, she was working and she was making wedding dresses and quinceanera dresses for the community and making extra money. That was her side hustle, right? Right. And she used to always have me keep her company. I spent a lot of time with her. She used to have me read the newspaper in Spanish, La Opinion, uh, because she wanted to be sure that I never forgot my Spanish. Mm -hmm. um, she used to tell me it was to keep her um, abreast of the news, but I knew it was just so that I knew how to read Spanish. Like it was very clear. 
Um, but you know, here I am, I'm seven, six years old. I don't know. And like, I see her making beautiful things. She's making mm-hmm. this beautiful wedding dress for somebody. Like, why wouldn't you as a little kid be like, you know, Hey, I want to learn to do that too. And so I did that. I was like, super innocent question, you know, Awalita, can you teach me how to sew? And like, little did I know that like, it was like that scene in the movie where like the record player comes to a screeching halt and like she stops everything she was doing. She turned off her machine and she looked at me and she was like, no, I will not teach you to sew Mm -hmm. because you, Miha, are never going to make a living with your hands. I remember that. You know, are we really, really clear? And I was like, what did I say wrong? Like it didn't make sense to me at the time. And it obviously, it took me a while to figure out that what she was telling me is ultimately, you know, what my book is trying Mm -hmm. to tell all women, Mm -hmm. right? Which is, it's our responsibility to make that leap forward for the next generation, right? She was, I disagree with my grandmother because I think working with your hands is nothing to be ashamed of, right? right? And so that's fine. But what she was really telling me was, I made sacrifices to get you to this level. Now it's your turn to bring us, all of us, Mm -hmm. into the next level, right? And when you look at the data, Mm -hmm. the World Economic Forum says that it's going to take 170 years at the rate that we're going right now Mm -hmm. to get to gender parity. So -hmm. that, for example, Latinas who are currently in the U.S., getting paid less than 55 cents on the dollar of their white male counterpart for us to get to a dollar is going to take 170 years. Like, no. Right. And so when I hear and I read stats like that, I remember that moment with my grandmother who was like, absolutely not. We will not learn to sew because you will leapfrog us. And by us, it's our family, our community, our sisters, our children, our children's children, children, you know, you're going to, leap us forward right and i think that you can take that and have it be really heavy like oh my god that's a lot of responsibility to put on a little girl but you know what i understood from day one that Mm -hmm. everything that i did came with it sort of you know that weight and that weight is also what keeps me happy it Mm -hmm. keeps my community around me like you know, it's both heavy, but it's also what keeps me rooted, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's the price I pay for having a big Latin American family as I feel a sense of responsibility and that's good. And honestly, I think that it makes you a very community driven person because I think that by your grandmother introducing that concept to you about, you know, your success is not just about you, it's about your family, it's about people who come from where you come from, people who look up to you, right? It's kind of like, you're the person who's really putting on for so many other individuals who haven't even met you, may not know your name, but they may experience someone who has had an encounter with you, who has produced results from either listening to you, being around you, learning from you, and all of that energy transcends because you walk with purpose. And that's Mm -hmm. why I think for me has really drawn me to you beyond the book, but of course even having you here. And I really hope that you all are listening carefully because she's dropping a lot of gems. Mm -hmm. Uh, What I will do, however, is I'm gonna have us fast forward a little bit because We do have a lot of budding entrepreneurs who tune into this podcast. Okay. So when you were 20 years old, you started your tech company, right? So mm-hmm. I know it's a little, you know, a little some time ago or whatever. <laughs> but I want to kind of because you have done so much more. I know that's probably beyond you. But give us a sense of your first pride and joy, right? What did it look mm-hmm. like when you just starting your own company? Yeah, you know, it looked like an accident and it looked like necessity, which I think happens a lot, right? Um I, you know, my parents didn't have a lot of money. And 
So here I am, I've got a student job, right? And it's like, I remember it was a work study job that probably paid like seven bucks an hour, eight bucks an hour, right? But I'm an engineer and I, you know, have to learn to code as a part of my schooling, but also I'm a geek and I'm surrounded by other geeks and we're all kind of teaching ourselves this new thing, you know, called the internet and HTML and, you know, web development and we're making silly things like whatever, you know, nothing of any consequence. And the job was managing the computer labs. Mm -hmm. So I had a lot of access to both the computers and the software. Yeah. And in big universities like in CU Boulder, for example, what a lot of these big um, tech organizations will do is in order to save money on testing, they will send out a not prime time ready piece of software. In this case, I distinctly remember it was Visual Studio. It was the piece of software that was used to build database driven websites that were a little more complex. So now you could actually put software online, right? And you could actually do things like, you know, interact with databases and real transactions and you know websites that actually do things not just you know pretty pictures of cats <laughs> and so we were learning visual studio because microsoft had sent out a beta version of the software for large research institutions like cu boulder to tinker around with and then as you find bugs you report them and they make the software better and that's the whole point of a beta version of a piece of software right mm -hmm. and so we had had access to this early kind of software and what ended up happening was um my family didn't know that my only form of transportation in Colorado was a motorcycle. Mm -hmm. And so when I went home to Columbia to where my mom's side of the family lives for the holidays, you know, I'm like, I think I'm, I'm the shit because I can ride a motorcycle, right? Um, but I've never ridden a dirt bike and I'm here like off-roading on dirt in the mountains in a cloud forest, riding around a dirt bike. I don't know what I'm doing. Bottom line, I get into an accident. I bum, you know, I now have a bum knee and a bum wrist, oh. and it's like January, and I got to go back to school. <laughs> I remember that. Like, oh. <laughs> and it's like, you know, snowing in Colorado in January, and I just came back from South America, and I can't really ride a motorcycle anymore. So with my right. tail between my legs, I go to the saddest, most poor-looking used car dealership, and I say, I sold my motorcycle. I look at the cheapest four-wheel drive car that he's got, which is a Jeep Cherokee, I remember. And I'm like, I have half of what you're asking for that car. And with the other half, my proposal to you is that I make you a website because I noticed that your competitors, like the big ass Toyota dealership and the Honda and everything, they have websites. Mm -hmm. You know, it's 96. They, mm -hmm. They're basic, but like they were also the big ones, not the little ones. Right. They were starting to have websites. And you, rinky-dink little used car dealership, you do not. But I can make you one. And the guy, to my surprise, said yes. And so I say all of that to say that that then started a spiral, right? And so mm -hmm. then he was happy with his website. I was happy with my car. His business was thriving. He told his friend down the street about this punk kid at the university that made him a website. And then I got another one and another one. And then little by little, I had more than I could handle. I brought on a partner and then I brought us a second partner. And next thing you know, yeah, we had a web development business. And that was that was my first business. And it was by accident and it was out of necessity, right? And it was maybe too necessity makes it so that you ask kind of cheeky questions, right? That was a cheeky thing to be like, uh, I only have half of what you're asking for. Can we barter, right? Um, I've seen my parents do that when you don't have what it takes, you know, in terms of capital mm -hmm. to get something done, you get creative, right? Really? And so I think that, you know, I look back at that and it feels, uh, you know, scrappy and that's good. That's, that is what being an entrepreneur is. And if you lose sight of that scrappiness later as you 
you know, progress in your career, you're losing sight of what it means to be an entrepreneur. So I, I don't mind telling that story because it reminds me even of like, that's what it means to be an entrepreneur. Yep. It inspires future entrepreneurs like myself at that time when I met you to really get serious and think about creative ways to solve problems for others. Mm -hmm. That way you're also solving problems about things that you care about as well. So that's why yeah. I thought that was so amazing. And you kept talking about entrepreneur, 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 right? So I want to get a sense of what are like 10 things or 10 key skills that every entrepreneur should have? Oh, you're, you're like quizzing me on my book. <laughs> hey. um, well, we covered one, right? right? So one of them is this idea of start scrappy and stay scrappy. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I tell the corollary of a more recent story of like, I start my first investment company and I go and I ask places in New York City where the real estate is really expensive and say, do you want an investor in residence to help mentor a lot of the entrepreneurs that are in your co-working space mm -hmm. and if you do then how about we trade and i get some free office space and in exchange you get you know uh, an investor in residence and i'm happy to do office hours every so right so i got new york office space for free and could i have afforded having my own office space yeah but why why mm -hmm. pay for something when i can you know find a way not to and again find that win-win solution so starting scrappy staying scrappy really important um I think that the other thing that's really important is we get told a lot if you spend time on Instagram that if you just follow your passion, everything will magically resolve itself, right? Follow your bliss. If you follow, if you search follow your bliss on Instagram, I think you will find every color of pastel and the inspiring little yeah. graphics that are going to tell you that. But the thing is, is that doesn't apply to us. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm sorry to say that. It's but not. if you don't come from money and you don't have a whole lot of those safety nets that, by the way, very few people in this country have, but they're just loud um, and they want everyone to believe that everybody's like them. Mm -hmm. um, the majority of us don't have safety nets and the majority of us don't have the ability to know that we can just follow our bliss. And if we love horses, well, we can spend the next four years building some business around ponies like Right. Good for you if you can do that. But most of us that like ponies still have to pay the mortgage and still have to, you know, work mm -hmm. for a living. And maybe, you know, pony is not in the cards for us, a pony business, right? And so I always say, screw that. Focus on things you want to punch in the face. Yeah. And when I say that, I just mean like, whatever it is, right? Make a list. And I, this is an exercise that I like to tell people do is like every day when you wake up in the morning, if you just make a list of here are the 20 things that I want to punch in the face, you're going to have a whole lot of things that get thrown away, right? Racism, you know, I want to punch in the face the fact that I don't know, there's this, you know, bug in my Instagram that every time I try to upload a video, it freezes on me and I have to shut it down and start it over again. So it's big things. It's little things. It doesn't matter. It's the exercise of identifying what are the things that really get under my skin. And what I find is that if you do that and you end up with a list of 50, 60, 100 things that you want to punch in the face and you start then examining that list of things and you start thinking, where is there a business here? Yep. Where is there something here where it doesn't just bug me, it bugs a lot of other people too. And how can I solve it? And then second step after I'm thinking about how can I solve it becomes how can I solve it and make money while I'm solving it. Amen. Mm -hmm. Right. <clears throat> Excuse me. Oh, you're fine. If you can, if you can solve a problem that you're really passionate about in the sense of like, it makes you mad. 
that kind of thing. And you can do it and do it in a commercial model that actually allows you to scale and to add value to people and solve that problem that really gets into under a lot of other people's skin. Now you have a product that people don't just like, but mm -hmm. that people need. Because in my experience, there's an old phrase, it's not my uh, phrase, but people buy, buy the cure, they don't buy the vitamin. Mm -hmm. And so if it bugs you, no matter how small or insignificant it might be, there's a really good chance it bugs someone else. That's and true. if you can sell the cure, again, not the vitamin, because right. people are, it's harder to sell prevention. Mm -hmm. If you can sell the cure, not the vitamin of a problem, no matter how small or big it is, there's probably a market for it and you may have a business on your hands. I would rather women, especially women of color who don't have these safety nets and who might not have you know, a rich daddy like the current occupant of the White House to pay mm -hmm. for the first couple million of their first businesses right. and all those subsequent ones after that, for us to be guided by solving real problems that actually matter to people. Yep. Because then you're gonna find yourself, A, having a business that people want, mm -hmm. and B, possibly even contributing something wonderful to the community, right? True, thank you I, for that. That's two, we could do 10, yeah, but I don't know if you have time. <laughs> I don't want you to give away the book, right? I had to hint at the book, but I'm so glad that you gave those. Um, what I also do wanna talk about is, so you mentioned about you meeting this woman, right? Who was your inspiration, right? Mm -hmm. And then you realize that there's a skill that she didn't possess that you were able to fulfill, which mm -hmm. does lead to you starting the program at Barnard. So yeah. give us a little play by play in, how did you even pitch this to the school? Like if someone mm -hmm. wants to also start something like this at a university, like what does that process look like? Mm -hmm. You know what, I think it's gonna be really similar. Well, here, it's gonna be different for everybody. Of course. But I think at the end of the day, cause it's funny when I tell that story, it starts to kind of sound like my first company, which is mm -hmm. um, here I am, I'm minding my own business. I don't wanna have anything to do with entrepreneurship and I don't wanna have anything to do with tech. I am hiding in what my friends call the theater circus, right? Like uh, what is an engineer doing going and studying theater, right? And I just, it was my time off. I wanted to take a couple years off to do something very different. Mm -hmm. um, and also take care of my body because I had not done a very good job of resting, of sleeping, of being healthy. And I was working in every time zone in the world. And I had a policy that as long as there were people working in the office, they could always call me, which means that I was working 24 seven and I was always on an airplane and it, it wasn't good for my body either. And so this was a time of healing and restoration for me and creativity. Right, because as a kid, I did want to be an artist, and here I get to hang out with like in summer of 2013 while I was at Columbia studying theater. I ended up being the playwright in residence at this. Um, it's like an incubator for the Great American Musical Play. Um, it's called Powerhouse, and it's mm -hmm. upstate in New York in Poughkeepsie um, mm -hmm. at Vassar College. And Powerhouse Theater attracts new, brand new people that you've never heard of, but it also attracts really famous theater people. So you had like Steve Martin was working on his new musical um, that summer, right? Mm -hmm. And so there I am, I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm like learning about theater and playwriting, but I'm the playwright in residence. And then in walks this punk Puerto Rican kid working on this thing called Hamilton Mixtape with a bunch mm -hmm. of people that don't look like they're from Broadway. They're like rap stars and like people that you don't normally see on Broadway. And I was like, wow. So I'm living that life. Like yep. it's crazy and I'm happy and I'm not looking for anything else. And one of my advisors mm -hmm. reads uh, a lot of my work, right? Mm -hmm. As I'm there and I'm writing and I'm learning how to write plays. Mm -hmm. And he notices that everything that I write has to do in some way with women and power. 
Mm. No matter what the plot line, the story might be different, whatever, but it's That's always about women in power. And he's like, so what was it like those 14 years that you were in tech? Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, it was fine. I worked really hard. He's like, no, I mean, like, really, really. <laughs> yeah. Like, come on, give me some more. He's like, because based on what I'm reading, everything that you're writing kind of feels like you're working some stuff out. Right. And I was like, so then I take some time and I realize, yeah, like being the only woman in the room my entire career was not easy. Being the only Latina sometimes in the whole building, <laughs> not easy. And these are not things that I had thought about. And he goes, you know, you know what would be good for you? Go across the street to Barnard, to the women's college, and meet a woman who is credited with saving Roe v. Wade in the Supreme Court. If nothing else, I think that you would enjoy meeting her and she'll end up being like an awesome piece of inspiration for one of your stories because you keep writing about women and power and this is one of the most powerful women that has lived in, you know, our generation. And so I'm like, absolutely. I go across the street, I ask for a meeting, I end up sitting with her and within like five minutes of meeting her, I'm like, I'm a playwriting student across the street at Columbia, da da da. And like five minutes into the conversation, she's like, yeah, you're not a playwright. Who are you? She's like, what's your story? Yeah, she's like, what's your story? And so I kind of tell her in brief my story. And she was like, well, Mm -hmm. she was running a Center for Leadership Studies. And the Center for Leadership Studies touched on politics. It touched on corporate life and corporate, Mm -hmm. you know, businesses. It touched on education, obviously, because it was in a college and they were teaching students as well as adults. And it touched on the arts because she had founded this thing called the Athena Film Festival. So it's like, it didn't take long to be like, you're teaching leadership mm-hmm. and you're touching corporate politics, education and the arts and you're teaching leadership and you're not teaching about entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, what, what, what kind of leadership center are you, you know, mm-hmm. running here? <laughs> and this is a this is a big lesson. If you're going to criticize somebody and point out a problem, you better be ready to solve it for them. Exactly. Because she was like, "You're right. Why don't you build that for us?" Mm-hmm. And that's go. what we ended up doing. And so, you know, careful when you complain because uh, sometimes people will make you fix it. And I'm glad I did because I got to work with her. I got to work with some of the most brilliant students. Many of them are profiled in the book. One of them actually inspired the book. Um, and it was, it was the biggest blessing because the biggest lesson for me with all of that and with her was that I thought that because I had had a tough time and I was wanting to hide and heal, right. Mm -hmm. I had somebody like her who is an activist and has been an activist her entire life kind of give me a swift kick in the ass and be like, you don't get to sit this one out. You spent 14 years doing what very few women, especially women of color, have done in a world where there are very few of you. There are actually half as many women today graduating as engineers as when I was studying engineering. So we're going the opposite direction. And she goes, you don't get to sit this out. You need to get back in the game and fix it. That's your job now. Right. And it's true, right? I had students at the college that were like, oh, wow, they would see my background and they'd be like, can you help me get a job when I graduate at Google, at, you know, Microsoft at whatever else? And I would feel guilty because I realized that I had not left the industry mm-hmm. any better than I found it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, here I have this like legendary activist on top of me going, 
get back in the game, fix it. You know, it's not enough just to heal. There's nothing wrong with healing, Mm -hmm. but part of my healing ended up being by paying it forward. And she was right. She was right. Nothing could have restored my faith in humanity and even my faith in myself than knowing that I wasn't just going away and hiding at some Ivy League college. I got to change the trajectory of a lot of people's lives and I had something to contribute, right? It wasn't just go hide and lick my wounds, right? Absolutely. I do want to kind of like reiterate some of the things that um, Natalie just mentioned, right? So to our budding entrepreneurs, once again, acknowledge your story, right? Think about what you've Mm -hmm. accomplished so far. Think about your storyline. Think about ways in which you may be able to use that experience and turn it into something valuable for people who are probably struggling the same way you did. And if you didn't struggle as much, for people who just need to get a sense of how do you I guess, get away from that struggle, right? How do I create a pathway that can be as productive and as easy as possible, right? I know that we have this kind of thing where it's like, oh, I gotta be a hustler, you know, I gotta go through the struggles, ah, ah, ah. But if you can make it easier for yourself so that you can scale and produce, I guess you can say massive impact, why not go that route, right? So really hone in on your story, really find value in your experiences and think about how you can always be a problem solver. If there's one thing I've learned from Natalie's journey is always thinking about ways to solve someone else's problem while you're mm-hmm. on solving the problems that you're seeing as well. All right, y'all, as we kind of uh, get to the end of this, I do have some more questions uh, but we'll wrap it up real soon. But I think you okay. had a one. Yeah, I mean, you said something that I think is really important and it's something that uh, keeps me up at night, which is, especially in our culture among communities of color, there's a lot of what I and others call hustle porn, right? Mm -hmm. You gotta work harder, you gotta work longer. And it's like, yeah, fair enough. Like working hard is important, but let's not forget Mm -hmm. that in the world, for example, my world, um, in business, the big boy deals happen at the golf course. There you have it. Okay. And I I have never golfed in my life and I will never. I know you're never (laughs) supposed to say never, but I'm not interested. But it's like, it's a metaphor, right? That like, the fact is, is there's a point at which no amount of hard work will win. It's about working smart. It's about being strategic. And one of the things to be strategic is to be healthy, is to sleep is to make sure that you're showing up with all cylinders going so that you can be your best self at that negotiating table, right? Or at that creative table. And you can't do that by working yourself to the bone. And that is part of why the big boy deals sometimes happen at the golf course. And so that's important to me because I think sometimes the simplistic, like just work, 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 and you know, outwork everyone else, that will work to a point and then it'll fail you. At some point you have to pivot. Absolutely. And that means that you're on my same wavelength because my next question for you are, what are some ways that you have found, you know, better productivity and wellness strategies for yourself? What have Mm -hmm. you done for yourself? Well, one thing is not to procrastinate when it comes to you and being healthy. Right. Um, And and I say that and I say that from the perspective of an entrepreneur, which an entrepreneur by design doesn't have two weeks paid vacation that somebody's given you, right? So you gotta work with what you've got. And I'm not gonna romanticize and be like, go and take a big vacation. Like as an entrepreneur, it's hard. It's it hard to be like, I'm gonna go off and take a month off or a week off even, right? Mm. So what I do as an entrepreneur is I take many vacations and I include this obviously in the book where if I have a moment during the day, for example, and somebody canceled an appointment on me, it's very tempting to be like, oh good, I have an extra hour to work out something, right? It's like, mm, or, or I'm in 
midtown Manhattan and somebody just canceled on a meeting with me and I can walk a couple blocks down and get a foot massage mm -hmm. because I have an extra hour yep. and that's going to make me feel good today. Yep. And it's not because somebody says, I mean, what, the beautiful thing about an entrepreneur is there is no nine to five. So yep. I can take my mini vacation that day in the middle of the day and get a foot massage because somebody canceled on me. Exactly. But even better than somebody canceling is to plan. And so, for example, one of the little things that I do now, um, and not everybody can do this, but maybe it'll inspire to come up with your version of this, is I don't schedule meetings on Fridays and Mondays. And mm -hmm. the reason I do that is not because I'm not working on Fridays and Mondays. Usually I am. Mm -hmm. But it's always harder to spontaneously be like, I think I'm going to take a long weekend and go and do something when I have a Friday full of meetings or a Monday full of meetings, because that means that if I want to go and take my three day weekend, I'm disrupting somebody else's schedule because I'm canceling things. And I always feel guilty about canceling things. So instead, I do have work to do on Fridays and Mondays, but it's not meetings with other people. And that means that I can impromptu at any given point be like, you know what? I'm gonna take a three day weekend. I'm gonna go, even if it's just an hour away and I'm gonna chill somewhere in the countryside for you know a couple of days and that's gonna be my little mini vacation because I know that I don't have a big long vacation coming up. So it's not the stereotypical take vacations you know, kind of situation. It's working with what you've got and being creative because as an entrepreneur, it's not nine to five classic everything the way that you see it on TV, right? Absolutely. And that was a splendid answer, actually. And I'm still over here feeling the, the foot massage because I think that's <laughs> very important. Man, I, I miss foot massages so much. That foot massage, like, Whew. that would be nice. That was a beautiful mm. answer, to be honest. And Thank to wrap you. everything up, finally, my last question to you <laughs> What does the future of work and entrepreneurship look like to you? Okay, I'll give you the short answer and then the longer answer. All right, let's do it. It looks like the screen. Hmm. It, that's what it looks like. It looks like women of color yep. using their voices to build things that last. Yep. Um, and what that means is it looks very different from today, mm -hmm. not just because of like who the faces are, mm -hmm. but what and how we define what success looks like. Absolutely. Right? So for example, um, if you go to Sand Hill Road mm -hmm. in Silicon Valley, success is defined as an exit, right? I build a business and as quickly as possible, I grow that business and I get it to the point where I can sell it or IPO, mm -hmm. right? Um, and then I move on mm -hmm. to the next thing. Mm -hmm. In my experience, not all, but mm -hmm. a lot of women of color, especially, are trying to build something that lasts. Absolutely. They're not rushing. To exit. They're trying to build companies, honestly, like Disney, like mm -hmm. Microsoft. They're trying to build businesses that are still going to be around in five years, in 10 years, in 50 years. They're building multi-generational wealth. And I think that when we do that, we move from being the kind of people who flip houses or flip businesses in this case, to the kind of people that really want to build things that are gonna build a legacy and that are gonna build the kind of multi-generational wealth that our communities have been largely locked out of. Mm -hmm. If you come from a rich granddaddy, then you can focus on hurrying up, build and sell the business. Exactly. And it doesn't matter if that business that you built and sold never created a single job, right? How many yeah. software businesses have been sold to somebody else and now that entire software business exists as a line of code and someone else's software. Right. No net new jobs were created by that $100 million sale, right? Somebody mm -hmm. made a lot of money, but nothing was actually built, right? right? And I think that 
both kinds of entrepreneurship are valid, mm-hmm. it's fine. Software is important, technology is important, but the way that I think that our communities and especially women of color are looking to build has mm-hmm. a different flavor. It looks different, it sounds different, it smells different. It in every way is different. And I think that the future of work looks more like that. Right. Thank you for that. Wow. Honestly, I got so captivated in that response because I'm just thinking like it's so true. (laughs) Even for myself, whenever I'm thinking about future products or maybe an application or software that I want to build, I'm always thinking about how do I not fall into this hustler mindset where it's like I'm going to create fulfill one little thing really quickly, create and keep doing it over again. How do I create this one thing that can last really long, but I can always make other things that are associated with it. And that way you're creating one huge enterprise. Like that's what I always envision. And I feel like women who are next to me, they envision that same thing, but it's hard because it's like, you know, where are the resources? Who do you go to? Are you even confident in what you're trying to build? Is there even opportunity for you to make a mistake along that way? And I have a group of people who trust you to solve it really quickly, right? So once again, that Mm -hmm. answer was so great. Uh, really made me think and to my listeners, I hope it did the same thing for you all. All right. So in an ideal world, uh, Miss Molina Nino would still be on this call for another three hours, but that's not <laughs> possible. <laughs> that is not the case. So I do want to say thank you so much for giving us your time. Uh, you answered those questions so thoughtfully. I can see, I can see myself probably creating a, lots of bite-sized educational, I guess, content just from this one 45 minute interview alone. So I do want to thank you. Yeah, thank you. Everything that I try to build and put out there is in the hopes that somebody obviously doesn't just find value in it, but build something based on it, right? And um, you know, the the book, for example, is fifty hacks. But at the end of it, I say very clearly, clearly, this is fifty hacks. There are yeah. fifty million more that you could create, right? It's just about the mindset, right? It's just about getting out of the frame that the way that you were taught that things go first, second, and third, and fourth, and on and on, is the way that you have to live life. Those mm-hmm. rules haven't worked for us. They, we need to stop trying to make them work for us. We need mm-hmm. to invent new rules, and that maybe means new ways of counting, mm-hmm. um, or not caring if you skip steps. Mm-hmm. Um, 170 years to gender parity is not acceptable, and we're gonna have to, you know, jump over some people um, and jump over some structures and, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and not to just our benefit, but to the benefit of our communities. Like there are a lot of people who depend on us to break free from these silly ideas that the powers that be would have us slow us down. Right. All right, y'all. And there you have it. So once again, thank you so much for being on this podcast. Uh, Once again, everybody, you will find more information regarding her platforms, her companies in the description below. So stay tuned, everybody. All right, y'all. Thank you.